0: I so appreciate the way Solo structures a service to lead us just very naturally into what we're going to be talking about throughout the service and throughout the sermon. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 2. And as you're turning, I remind you the name of this series is When God Leads the Way and we're We're talking in light of what we're going on right now, this journey of sort of unique experiences that we're going through as a world and as a Canadian culture. We're talking about when God leads the way and we're relating it in light of what Moses and the children of Israel went through on their journey about the considerable opportunities that God presented them with as they were on this journey. And I believe he's giving us many opportunities as well. And they exercised some of those opportunities, but sadly, um, several times, as we're gonna discover, they chose not to. And so really this is a question that is is front and center for us. Are we going to exercise or are we going to step away from the opportunities that God gives us? And so last week we talked about how the children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt and the existing Pharaoh, after a long history of the children of Israel being responsible citizens, he felt threatened by them and he decides to eliminate the threat by having all the male, newborn, Hebrew babies murdered. And two very courageous women said, no, we will not do that, with the full expectation that this would cost them their lives. What will we do when someone asks us, when someone orders us, perhaps, to do something we know is wrong? What would I be willing to sacrifice in order to follow the clear leading of God? Especially we talked about last week as it talks about, as it pertains to the taking of innocent human life. And we talked about abortion. We talked about not simply being pro-life, but being whole life. That God looks at a child that's conceived and he says that not only do I want that child to be born, but I'd really love to see that child have an education to not be abused, to exercise and be all of the things that God has for that child. A really whole-life look at the life, a life on purpose as God intends it, salvation, uh, maturing in the faith, being used on purpose for God's glory, a whole-life approach. We talked as well about euthanasia, assisted suicide, in our society and how in Canada it's already a legal thing and it's becoming increasingly through more and more legislation more accessible more available and there was more legislation passed in March along that line and they've got more in the queue coming in March of 2023 to make it more accessible to make it more available what will we do when someone asks us to do something we know is evil and wrong. Eventually, Moses, sorry, Pharaoh, openly orders that the male children would be murdered. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and said to her slave girl to go and get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then the sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. When does faith triumph? Well, faith triumphs in the hour of greatest need. When does faith triumph? Faith triumphs in the hour of... Of greatest need. And we go through our normal lives as believers. We hopefully begin our day in prayer. We commit ourselves. We commit our lives and our families. To the hands of God. And as we go into the day. We, we believe that Jesus will be with us. But then those moments come. And those situations come in life. When the pressure is really on. Can I tell you something funny about myself? So last night. I wake up at 2 a.m., I can't sleep, and my mind is racing, and I'm getting worked up, well, what if this happens, and what if that happens, and I'm getting more and more agitated as the hours go by, and all of a sudden, I went, you know what, I'm preaching on that in just a few hours' time, I should probably practice what I'm going to talk about, and I just declared in prayer, when does faith triumph? It triumphs in the hour of greatest need. And an incredible sense of peace just descended on me. And I fell asleep. Not Christian faith. It's not that faith is not For the ordinary times of life, because it absolutely is. It's for every situation and every circumstance. But really when faith shines the brightest and when the power of God is truly on display is when our human abilities are not sufficient. And we're going to see this truth illustrated again and again throughout this little series in the life of Moses. You know, it says in the book of Hebrews, in commenting about this particular story, in chapter 11, it says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's verdict. They were not afraid of the king's edict, actually, it says. God put something in their heart to do, and they had the faith to say, we're going to try to see things as God sees things. And they're faced with this terrible choice. They hear the sound of the soldiers of Pharaoh's army moving through the streets. They hear the wailing of the parents. They hear the screams of the babies as they're being murdered, but they would not give in. And what might we be asked to do to allow our faith to be front and center in the decisions we make? And I believe it just begins in the small issues of life, in the everyday issues of life. I'm going to trust Jesus in this seemingly sort of minor issue. And I'm going to grow in that. I'm going to remember these biblical stories that we read about. We just sang that, those very concepts Moments ago. You were faithful then, you're going to be faithful now. And we grow and we grow, and our levels of trust in God, and we say, Jesus, I'm not just going to say you're the leader, I'm going to just really bow down to the fact that you are the functional leader in my life. So imagine with me, as the story sort of suggests to us, something like this might have happened. One night, Relatives are over for supper at Moses' parents' house. They've had a long day laboring, slave labor. The Egyptians are treating them ruthlessly. The passage in chapter 1 says, there's some noise in the back room. And Uncle Yaakov says, what was that? And the mom and dad say, shh, that's baby Moses. He's sleeping in the back 40. And Uncle Yaakov says, what? What? If you don't turn that baby over, they're going to come and not only kill him, they're going to kill all of you. In fact, I'm leaving right now. Aren't you afraid of what's going to happen? And Moses' parents said, no, we're not afraid. We are not afraid because we believe we're following the word of God. We believe we're following God's clear leading, and we're convinced that God will take care of the results, whether those results from a human perspective would be described as good or from a human perspective as bad. And God calls on us to make decisions based on a close relationship with him, based on a deep-seated trust and exploration of his word, and we make these decisions in faith. And they turn their backs on the authorities of that day. And we... Asked the question last week, and we're asking it in a sense again today. What will I do when someone asks me to do something I know is wrong? As Christians, it's very clear in Romans 13, we are to pray for those in authority over us. That God, in fact, has put them in authority over us. We are to pray for them, to be obedient to them, and that is absolutely true up until the point we reach in a passage like this. When those in authority over us ask us to do something that clearly, and I mean clearly, goes in a non-ambiguous way against the teaching of the Word of God, such as this passage illustrates, the taking of innocent human life. Or, if there's authorities in some way are saying, you cannot preach Jesus or His Word. And even as Moses' parents did, we do the opposite. And I love Canada. I am deeply proud to be a Canadian. It's a huge privilege. I am a Canadian citizen. But let me just say, when we are followers of Jesus Christ, no matter where we're from, first and foremost in life, I am a citizen of heaven. Number one, I'm a citizen of heaven. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples are hauled in by the religious authorities. They're commanded not to preach Jesus, not to speak of Jesus ever again. And the boys just say to them, not a chance. We're going to do it. Even though the lawful authorities have said, do not preach Jesus, they said, we will do it, come what may. And of course, eventually, that did cost them their life. But in that immediate moment, they were released. And if you continue reading in the chapter, because of this step of faith, they're filled again with the Spirit in verse 31. And it says they go out and speak the word of God boldly. So they take little baby Moses, they put him in a basket, and in faith, they commit him to the Lord. Faith triumphing in the hour of greatest need. But it was also faith that it was expressed through, I would suggest, quite a reasonable plan, at least given the circumstances. Think about it with me for a couple of moments. She followed. Technically, she follows Pharaoh's command, because she does place him in the Nile. But of course, she has a very different intent than evil Pharaoh. She places him in a waterproof papyrus basket. And it's interesting because if you read the Hebrew, the Hebrew terminology here in chapter 2 is the exact same words that are used in Genesis chapter 6 for how Noah was to build the ark. This is no accident. She places him in this waterproof papyrus basket. The basket has a lid on it, we see in the text. The insulation would have been, there would have been insulation from the sun with the lid, and, and the pitch and tar would have kept it from getting too hot or whatever. She places it in the reeds, which would be in the shallows, so less chance of the basket floating away and flipping over or something like that. The shallows would undoubtedly have been near a small village which would be an ideal place for a baby to be discovered because this is where the women would go to get water, to wash their clothes, and to bathe. She probably thought to herself, I'm just guessing on this, she probably made it a very nice-looking basket so if some of the women saw it, they would be drawn to it and they would want to salvage it. And she has thought this through and prepared it As best she possibly could even though she's acting in dramatic faith she has a plan attached and some people have this mistaken idea that when we talk about having faith that you're just letting go and let God you don't have to think anymore you don't have to try anymore and faith is not that it's not just letting go and doing nothing the biblical approach is to get going with God our faith is to be active Not passive, needs to be thoughtful, and we exercise in faith using the wisdom God has given us, using the wisdom it says in James chapter 1, he has promised us, using the spiritual gifts that he's seeded into our life, using the common sense he's given us, and we couple all of those things with this deep reliance in faith on him and his word. We don't have that last part, we get into big, big trouble. Some of you know that one of the hats I'm privileged to wear is uh, I chair what's called DEXCOM, the District Executive Committee. And so what that is, is it's an elders board that oversees all 140 congregations we have here in Alberta. When COVID hit in earnest in March of 2020, We were in the middle at a district level, district leadership level, of a massive changeover. Biggest changes there's been in in decades. And at that particular point, in addition to all those changes, there was also a number of district staff that had retired or had left. And we were told by our district treasurer they were projecting a massive drop in income in March of 2020. We, project, we were told a projection of a 33% at the district level drop in income, which would translate into a massive deficit. But we also know, because as leaders, you're always called to see sooner and see further, we are anticipating incredible stresses and fatigue that would come as a result of COVID, which is absolutely played out on a massive scale. You saw that in the in the face and the words of Curtis just moments ago. That's a classic example. And so we knew there was going to be a huge call for increased member care. What do you do? What do you do? Do you put a freeze on hiring these valuable positions, even though this massive need we knew was going to be coming? And so as a Dexcom, we took extended time to do listening prayer as a group. We encouraged the exercise of the spiritual gifts. And a supernatural prophetic word was given, which we were told through this word to go ahead and hire this key staff member. Even though it would mean, if nothing changed, a bigger increase in the deficit. And the prophecy was to go ahead and hire this key role, and that God would fully supply the need. And as we prayed about it, this doesn't make sense on a human level, right? But on God's level, it does. (laughs) And we believed it, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And we authorized the hiring of this additional person. Fourteen months later, the treasurer was just in touch with me just a short while ago. And they said that after significant giving by God's people and careful stewardship, because again, faith is always accompanied, not in a, you know, you just sit around and hope for the best, you're, you're active in your faith, and through significant, careful stewardship by our district staff, we're no longer facing a deficit, but actually projecting a slight budget surplus, and so we praise Jesus for this stuff. We use wisdom, we exercise faith, and when God leads at times in ways that would seem very contrary to what human wisdom in some cases might suggest. Now let me also say, after telling that story, that when we step out in faith, it doesn't always end up rosy from a human perspective. Corey ten Boom writes this. Faith doesn't always take you out of the problem. Faith takes you through the problem. Faith doesn't always take away the pain. Faith gives you the ability to handle the pain. Faith doesn't always take you out of the storm. Faith calms you in the middle of the storm. So what happens when Moses' family takes this tremendous step of faith? The worst possible thing. At least it seemed that way. Miriam's in the reeds, she sees Pharaoh's daughter going up to the basket, sends her slave girl to get it, and she's going, oh no, it's Pharaoh's daughter. This is horrible. If anybody shouldn't get this basket, it should be Pharaoh's daughter. But God takes the most unlikely circumstances when it seems totally hopeless, in the hour of greatest tension, and he can turn it around, and he says to She says to one of the servants, when she sees the reaction of Pharaoh's daughter, and as Pharaoh's daughter opens the lid, I don't know if if an angel pinched baby Moses or something, I don't know, but the baby starts crying, and Pharaoh's daughter is moved by what she sees, and she recognizes maybe the blanket that was around him was a, Hebrew-style piece of clothing, or maybe they noticed he was circumcised. I don't know. But she knows it's a Hebrew baby. And rather than obey her dad, she does the right thing and saves this baby and decides to adopt him. And Moses' sister, Miriam, steps out of the bulrushes and says, Excuse me, ma'am, would you... uh, Would you like me to find someone to nurse that baby for you? And she goes and gets Moses' biological mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter says, would you do this for me? And by the way, I will pay you to do this for this child. And I often think, you know, so often in Scripture, God just has this incredible sense of humor. And I think this is one of those times that it's really on display. Because he gets Pharaoh to foot the bill for the guy that will one day overthrow Egypt and set the Israelites free. See, whenever we thumb our nose at God, a lot of people do. One day... They will pay for that. God is merciful beyond our wildest imagination. God is patient so much more than we would ever begin to be patient. He offers people opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But when they continue to thumb their nose at him, he is a righteous judge. And one day, he will deal severely with that kind of approach. People say no to him over and over. Think about how they would have failed without faith. And so Moses' mother nurses him and raises him until he grows older. And the custom in that culture at that time would have been anywhere from two to four years of age. Now, I'm not an early childhood specialist. All I did was kind of, you know, help. Debbie did most of it help when my kids were little. But I've heard that the most impressionable years of a person's life, the time when they learn the most, are those first two, three, even four years of life. And all the groundwork is really well laid, or in some cases, not well laid. And in those years, Moses must have learned a tremendous amount from his biological parents about the Lord, about his faith, about his heritage, because later we know, and we're going to discover next week, he turned his back on all the riches, all the privileges, all the things that he would have been receiving in the court as Pharaoh's grandson to return to God. And I would argue it's because his biological parents laid an incredible God-centered foundation. So let me talk for a few minutes to those that have small children or maybe one day would like to have small children or maybe you're a grandparent here today or an aunt or an uncle. What kind of a foundation are we laying? Let me tell you a story about a grandma I know. This grandma, um, her one daughter, is a really nice young woman. But she's married and she's not following Jesus at all. And her husband got a job overseas. So they moved overseas. While she was there, had had twins. And so this daughter, again, nice person, but not laying any kind of a biblical foundation for these grandkids at all, for these kids at all. And so this grandma and grandpa, but grandpa is more limited because he's busy working and stuff. But this grandma and grandpa at times have been flying overseas at great cost and expense frequently. And they're not going to visit per se with their daughter. They do a bit of that and they're son-in-law, and they're not going to go on big holidays and stuff like that. They are going strategically, on purpose, to prayerfully invest in those two kids. To pray for those kids. To talk to those kids. And even though the daughter is not following Jesus at all, she's not opposed to grandpa and grandma talking to them about it and praying for her kids. So they keep going over and over and over to invest in those grandkids' life, to build a spiritual foundation. I know of another grandma that has written a devotional book that she's passed on to her grandkids, life experiences, things that Jesus has taught her on the journey with Jesus. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents. What kind of foundation are we making for them? Make a plan. Be, be systematic. <laughs> Think about it. Do I pray for them? Do I pray with them if I may allowed to do that? Do I read them the Bible if I'm allowed to do that? Do I talk to them about the things of God? Do I teach them the things of God? Do I take them to church? Do I take them to kid zone regularly? To or have I allowed the other activities of life to become more important than these key foundational things? And when we do that. They might even be really good things, but if they become more important, we're taking a very short-sighted approach to that which is most important. And I understand that kids make their own decisions one day as they become adults. But as parents, as aunts, as uncles, as grandparents, our responsibility is to lay a healthy biblical foundation. Let me shift it to the other foot for a second. If you're a kid here, and I know that most of them are off in Kids zone, but if you're a child, if you're a teenager, if you're an adult that has older parents, when's the last time you showed appreciation to them, to your parents, to your grandparents, to your aunt, to your uncle, for their impact on your life, for the sacrifices they made for you? You know, my parents prayed for me and Debbie and my kids, every day. They prayed for me every day. They prayed for this church every day. When my kids were born, pastors go typically every year on a prayer retreat for three or four days. They made a commitment to me. They said, no matter where you live in the world, we will come and watch your kids. You don't have to worry about that in any way. We will come and be with your kids while you're at Prairie retreat. Lots of sacrifices, lots of foundational stuff. And I appreciate that. And I would say to the children or the teenagers or the adults that have parents still living, have the courage... And it does take courage to follow their godly example. So have we decided to follow him in his leading, whatever that might be? To have the kind of courage the two women in chapter 1 and the woman and her husband had in chapter 2. Every one of these people risked their lives. When does faith triumph? It triumphs in the hour of greatest need. And this, you know, you know, faith is for the everyday parts of life. It's for all parts of life, absolutely. But it's especially for those times when everything is hopeless, where the only place to turn is to God. And this passage calls on us to get going with God with an active faith, using the wisdom, using the giftedness, the spiritual gifts, using the common sense that God has given us with a, with a rock-hard commitment to, to him, to obeying his word. When I do this, or you do this, I believe he meets our needs completely. It may not turn out exactly the way it did for Moses or his parents, but our needs will be met. When does faith triumph? Well, faith triumphs in the hour of greatest need.